0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America
1: Changed Forever.
0: I'm Jeff Begays. On this edition of America Changed Forever from CBS News Radio, devastation once again after a powerful hurricane... Ida knocking out power, causing severe flooding, and sadly leading to loss of life.
2: The death toll was highest in New Jersey, where at least 25 people were killed. Most drowned after they became trapped in their cars. Others were swept away by the
3: fast-moving waters after getting out of their vehicles.
0: On this episode, we'll get the latest in hard-hit areas.
3: It sounded like a freight train was coming through, and everything just started flying. The house started vibrating, and that's the first time I ever got scared being in that house, I was going to stay alive one way or the other. If, if I had to turn the sofa over on
0: top
2: of me, oh, I was going survive this.
0: We'll go in depth on these super storms and we'll talk to people who've experienced the power and fury of this storm firsthand and people who are now having to rebuild. First, John Stanton is the editor at The Gambit in New Orleans. How are you holding up?
3: Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right. I think that, uh, it's been challenging because it's been so hot. Uh, you know, uh, the upside, uh, I've, I've been fortunate, I think, compared to a lot of my neighbors because I um, have a place that I can go to where we don't have air conditioning in our office, but we do have um, a generator so we can work and we have a couple of fans. So during the the, the really roughest part of the day, um, you know, it's not too terrible. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie, it's it's pretty, it's pretty tough to – you know, go to sleep and it's a million degrees out and wake up and it's, you know, 999,000 degrees out. So, yeah, it's been tough.
0: That Louisiana heat is something, especially when you don't have AC. I'm assuming that you and a lot of the people around you are still without electricity.
3: Yeah, um, they have started to hook up some of the electricity in the city um, over the last probably 24 hours or so. But I would say the, the vast majority of the city is, is still out. Um, particularly if uh, you live in an area that is um, not super well off uh, uh, or anywhere near like a hospital or some kind of critical infrastructure where you might be on their their part of the grid. Um, yeah, it's been it's it's still pretty much pretty much a total uh, blackout of the city.
0: How would you describe the level of frustration? Um, you know, people here are
3: used to this kind of thing to a certain degree um, everybody's kind of gone through it before um, so there's a there's a base level of, of of understanding i think the biggest frustration right now that everyone has is with um energy new orleans the uh, the power company um you know i think that, that it's most people understand that you know a giant storm like ida with really powerful sustained winds that kind of sat on us for, you know, 10 hours uh, is going to do damage and is going to knock the power out. And, and we understand that, but it's the, it is it, it feels like they they just didn't kind of take the steps that you would have thought necessary to protect the system and to have um, viable means to get some amount of power back up kind of quickly. Um, and it's definitely getting more and more, um, uh, Frustrated. I think people are getting more and more frustrated every single day. Every hour that goes by that we sit in, in the sweltering heat, um, it's it gets worse.
0: It's hard to believe that some people could still be without power for up to a month. So there are residents there who don't think energy learned the lessons from Katrina.
3: To a certain degree, I mean, one of the one of the things that, that has been sort of baffling to most people is, you know, the 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 main lines that were coming into the city where we got most of our power from. Uh, were transmission wires that crossed the the, uh, uh, Mississippi River and one of the towers went down. And for years, people have said, this is a vulnerability to the network. And Entergy's response has consistently been, they've never gone down before. Why should we worry about it now? Um, They also built a plant uh, against the wishes of a large percentage of the population uh, in 2018 in New Orleans East, Um, And at the time, they promised that this would be what is called a a black startup plant, which means it can go, it can bring the power back up um, immediately. And at the time, folks were arguing that they should do something that was more renewable, possibly solar panels or wind. And the big argument that Entergy New Orleans used against that proposal was that it couldn't just start up immediately and get the power back on. Turns out that the storm hit, and then they said, "Oh, that's not actually how that plant works at all, and we can't just start the power with with that plant." And so, um, you know, I think it's there. There's frustration amongst the citizens on the city council that we feel like we've been lied to pretty regularly by them, um, and that they just didn't do some obvious kind of planning to deal with this.
0: How do people feel about city
3: leadership this time around? Um. I think that that, um, the mayor has has done, um, you know, I think a a pretty good job in terms of just dealing with the moment-to-moment crises that we've had. Um, She definitely, uh, Mayor Latoya Cantrell, she she excels um, to a certain degree in these kind of moments where there's a crisis. She's very sort of um, commanding and will just sort of, you know, has a big presence on these kind of things um and they've they've stood up some some infrastructure to help people fairly quickly in the in the aftermath i think that there are some some legitimate questions that are going to need to be, need to be answered about why there wasn't um greater planning why there aren't wasn't you know a, a plan to have say shelters that would have generators to provide air conditioning for people to stay in um you know rather than just having cooling centers during the day um you know, that would take several days to get online. I think those questions have to be answered later. But I think at this point, you know, the city government is is working very hard and I, I definitely will give them a lot of credit for um, putting in the hours and, and, and trying to, to get this fixed.
0: Besides the power outages, what do you think was the most destructive part of Ida?
3: Oh, it was without a doubt. It was the wind. I mean, you know, in In New Orleans, it was directly a result of the wind taking down, you know, this large transmission tower, like those ones you'll see sort of on the highway um, that stick way up in the air. Uh, One of those came down uh, in Jefferson Parish. It took out their power um, to the degree that like, we don't even know when they're going to start to get power into some parts of Jefferson Parish. Uh, And and the wind was just really for us, the the most devastating part of it. Um, In other parts of of the state, Particularly downstate, like towards the coast, uh, it was the the storm surge combined with uh, the with rain and, and wind. I mean, you know, uh, there there are parts of 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 the state that have been just completely destroyed. Everything that was there is gone. Um, and uh, it was it was a remarkably powerful, dangerous storm. Um, I think we the one thing that New Orleans and Baton Rouge, the two largest cities in the state, kind of lucked out on is that. The track of the storm went between the two cities, and so we did not get the kind of flooding that we've seen in other parts of the of the state. But we were literally ten miles away from having devastating floods.
0: What is it about the makeup of the residents there in Louisiana that keeps them chugging along through these devastating storms? They are resilient.
3: People love it here. It is a it's a magical part of the world to live in, and. Um, you know, uh, climate change has caused it to get a lot hotter here and to have a lot more storms than in the past. But throughout the history of this region, it's always been um, not the easiest place to live. You know, there's a lot of swamps, a lot of gators. Um, you know, it's it's not an easy it was not an easy place to settle um, uh, for white settlers when they came. Um, you know, the First Nations peoples that lived here. Uh, were very kind of uh, hard scrabbled and had a had sort of figured out how to live with this place um, but it, it wasn't you know a, a walk in the park for them either and I think you know the, the culture and the history and people you know there are people whose families have been here for hundreds of years um, um, and, and First Nations people go back who knows how long uh, and I think that the that, that the the identity of the place is very much a part of the people and it's impossible to separate the two things. And so I think no matter what happens, people will always come back to Southeast Louisiana
0: and will always make it their home. How are you encouraging the reporters that you work with to cover this story? Um, I think, you know, we try to cover,
3: we try to cover this story kind of like we cover most every hard news story that we do, which, which is, you know, to bring, um, uh, empathy and understanding to the people that you 're going to be writing about to try to um, not speak for anyone um, but to allow to provide space for them to have their their voices and their stories told by them um, you know and to we we don 't simply want to to highlight just the bad things you know with with energy and with response and all that you know we want to also be able to talk about. The amazing things that, that that just regular people in our community and in the community surrounding New Orleans are doing, you know, 24 hours a day right now to help each other. And, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, Louis Michaud from the Lost Bayou Ramblers, you know, just going out and, and pulling together caravans of food to, you know, small community organizations in the river parishes that have always focused on environmental justice issues to suddenly pivoting to finding ways to get food and water and shelter to to people in need, Um, you know, to, to focus on those kind of people and moments as much as we are also focusing on asking the questions of what happened and why.
0: I saw that you wrote an article about Entergy. The title is, Those Entergy New Orleans Maps Aren't True. So back to Entergy. You think that they've been misleading the public.
3: Yes, energy has definitely been misleading the public. They, they, they got some power turned on on um, uh, Wednesday very early in the wee hours of the morning, something like one or two in the morning on Wednesday morning and um, in the East. And one of the big concerns that people in town had is that every time we've had a situation like this, like after Zeta and after other hurricanes, inevitably the CBD, the, which is the Central Business District, the French Quarter, Wealthier parts of uptown uh, all get their power, and meanwhile, the other parts of town, which are predominantly black, predominantly much poor, will will, will will suffer and wait sometimes weeks before they get their power. And Energy on Wednesday turned on some lights in the east, which is a which is a predominantly black part of town, uh, and it's very a lot of it is, is is fairly poor. And they then put out these maps that showed. Um, two predominantly black areas of town with having power, uh, part of Treme and part of Mid-City. And, you know, I think that all they got kind of what they wanted with that, right? Like all of the news stations had these pictures of the map. We used an image from it in one of our stories uh, showing this. And, you know, it, it, I think, softened the criticism against them and gave them some time, frankly, to be able to turn on the power in, the French Quarter and in the CBD and in Uptown. And in fact, those areas that they claimed all day Wednesday were on, none of them had power, or at least most of them didn't have power. My reporters went out and walked and drove blocks and blocks and blocks of those areas, and there was no power. And, um, you know, that's that's deeply concerning to me, um, just as a citizen, but as a journalist uh, as well. Um, and, you know, they also, they've, they've lied to the city council, about their capacity to get back online. Um, The city council president, Helena Moreno, is very upset with them and uh, is promising to hold hearings into that. Um, So I think, you know, Entergy New Orleans is going to have to answer a lot of questions. and 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 I really hope that they don't just get sort of a slap on the wrist this time.
0: Entergy hasn't responded to your request for comment. You sent them a request for comment Twitter as well. That was not responded to. So are they saying anything to respond to this?
3: No, they have not. They, they will, you know, they, they keep putting out, they don't respond very generally to reporters, um, even when there's not a, a problem. Um, that's the, the the thing about monopolies. They don't have to respond to people because the monopoly, they kind of do whatever they want to do. And um, And, you know, they've continued to push out, like, texts and, um, you know, on their Twitter tweets about, you know, the, oh, we have power on in this part of town. We have power on in that part of town. And we continue to get people that are emailing us and and sending us tweets saying the power's not on here, uh, even though on their map it shows that it's on. um, You know, and look, they are getting the power on. I don't want to say that they're not because they definitely are. And they are getting it on in certain – in in other parts of town besides – the CBD and and the French Quarter and Uptown. But the question is, is is their priorities and and their transparency? And neither of those things seem to be uh, very
0: good right now. Uh, I love the fact that you're holding these public officials accountable, that you're trying to make sure that they're telling the public the truth. And what I hear about Entergy, it just does not sound like a company that has always been transparent.
3: No, they, they really have it, and you know they 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 play lots of kind of uh, games. I mean, you know, um, and the the thing of, the thing that is most interesting to me is that they 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 are transparent occasionally by accident. I think, for instance, yesterday my reporter Sarah rabbits asked their CEO, you know, are 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 New Orleanians going to be expected to pay for the 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 repairs to the the electrical grid? And she basically said yes, um, and that they would try to supplement what what uh, their rate hike would be through city and federal funds. So we're paying coming and going um, on, on that. And, you know, I don't think she intended to say that, but, but her phrasing of it made clear that that was, in fact, what we were going to end up having happen to us. And, you know, I think... A lot of times, you know, on the broader question of keeping people honest, like I think we will oftentimes focus on, you know, the mayor or the president or whoever, right? Like an elected official. And that is good and necessary. But like functionally speaking, in a person's day-to-day life, energy has at least as much um, influence and power and control over them as the government does. And I I do think that we too often – um, allow these kind of large corporations to just sort of say, say things and then no one really thinks to go back and make sure that they're telling the truth and when they're not to, you know, hold them to account for that.
0: There are such things as superstorms. Was Ida one of them? Jeff Berardelli is a CBS News meteorologist and climate specialist. All right, Jeff, where does Ida stack up historically?
2: So Ida was, in some respects, about the strongest storm that's ever hit Louisiana, not the strongest storm that's hit the U.S. Now, when we measure the strength of storms, we do it with pressure, something called millibars. Katrina actually had a lower pressure. So technically speaking, it was a stronger storm, and it produced a lot more storm surge because it was out in the Gulf for days, just kind of spinning and building up that mountain of water. It came in with a pressure significantly lower than Ida, but Ida's winds were stronger by around 25 miles an hour, and actually probably a lot more than that. Just Ida was a strengthening storm at landfall, so it not only had those winds of 150, but it kept those Cat 4 winds for six hours. Whereas Katrina, as soon as it touched land, it was already weakening, so its winds dropped off really, really rapidly. So, for all intents and purposes, Ida's winds were likely about twice as strong when it came on land, but its pressure wasn't quite as strong because it was still not strengthened to probably its potential because it ran out of uh, ran out of water. And but it would have probably kept strengthening to a cat five had it been given the time. How devastating was the storm surge? We don't know exactly how much storm surge. Um, was the official number yet. I've seen as much as, you know, around seven to eight feet of storm surge. I bet it's closer to probably 10 to 12 feet of storm surge as the maximum. Uh, Katrina had 28 feet of storm surge. So again, it, it, it's not just about how strong the system is in terms of winds. It's the size girth of Katrina was larger and Katrina had been over the water for two to three days. So It slowly built up that mountain of water, whereas Ida formed very late. And so it didn't have time to kind of build up as much storm surge.
0: What is it about that region that makes it so susceptible to these kinds of storms?
2: Well, they're essentially the outlet to the tropics, right? So anything that develops in that big basin, the Caribbean or the Gulf of Mexico, has to go somewhere. Um, Oftentimes, it moves north. And, and sometimes moves northwest. During this time of year, we have something called the Bermuda High, which is near Bermuda. And a high has clockwise winds around it. So if you picture being on the west side of this big dome of high pressure, the winds are going to come from the south to the north. So it tends to open up a corridor to push these systems directly north or northwest. Now, you don't often get as many storms that hit the west coast of Florida. Florida's on the east side of the basin, and you would need a storm going from southwest to northeast to hit the Tampa Bay area. So Tampa has dodged a lot of the major hurricanes over the past 100 years, whereas Louisiana and Texas has not. If the southwest portion of Florida is going to be hit by a hurricane, it's more likely for it to happen in October Once the steering patterns change and the Bermuda High moves further east and cold fronts start to drop to the south, those cold fronts will often push the systems towards east. They'll kind of force them eastward across the eastern part of the Gulf of Mexico into western Florida. So it just depends on the time of year. But basically, Louisiana is in in a prime area for tropical systems to hit them. And, you know, last year there were at least uh, two major hurricanes that hit Louisiana, This is, I think, the third in two years, although there were more storms uh, than just two last year that hit Louisiana. I think it was four systems.
0: What I've learned about covering hurricanes is how large swaths of water give the hurricanes the fuel they need to
2: grow. So water temperatures need to be 80 degrees or higher for a tropical system to form. Obviously, the hotter the water, once you get past 84, 85 degrees, then you get into major hurricane territory. And, you know, for every degree warmer the temperature is, you know, you're much more likely to see a stronger hurricane. For instance, we know that for every, you know, two degree Fahrenheit rise in water temperature, we see around 20 miles an hour more intensity in hurricanes, or at least potential intensity. So a storm that was a cat four can now be a cat five because of climate change, because we have warmed the oceans by around two degrees and uh, the ocean heat contents so or the energy that the ocean stores hits records every year. 90% of the excess heat from human caused climate change from greenhouse gases, which are building up due to the burning of fossil fuels, 90% of that is stored in the ocean. So the ocean... Then has to release that energy somehow, and it does that by creating bigger floods and bigger hurricanes.
0: Is that why we're seeing more of these kinds of storms? And what are superstorms?
2: Well, okay. So, for instance, Superstorm Sandy. Why we call that a superstorm wasn't because it was so strong; it was because it merged with a jet stream. Uh, so it was essentially two storms in one. It was a hurricane that merged with a cold front slash, you know, upper level trough or jet stream, as we call it and that supercharged sandy well that's just what happened with ida when it moved across the northeast it was just a remnant low wasn't very strong it wasn't producing any tornadoes it wasn't it was barely producing any heavy rain and then all of a sudden a jet stream came in like a shot of steroids and it supercharged that tropical moisture that was moving across pennsylvania new york and new jersey and it made it and it just it, it basically gave it a tremendous boost and it, it it wrung out all the rainfall, and it caused tornadoes as well. So so that's what we mean by a superstorm, a storm that is kind of you know two storms in one, if you will. But uh, in answer to your question, more generally, we are seeing an increase, without a doubt, in especially Cat fours and Cat fives. And actually, we are now twice as likely for a run of the mill hurricane to become a major. Cat-3, Cat-4, and Cat-5 hurricanes. So in the Atlantic Ocean, a storm is now twice as likely to make that leap from kind of a run-of-the-mill, not-a-big-deal hurricane to a Cat-3, Cat-4, Cat-5 hurricane. And that's mostly because of human-caused climate change.
0: I think I know the answer to this, but do they realize the impact and the connection between climate change and these storms?
2: So I think they realize, hopefully, the impact between climate change and these storms, but I don't think they understand that just small incremental increases in temperature cause exponential increases in damage. So just to give you an idea, and it's, it's good that you're asking this question right now because a, a report came out two days ago from the UN. They've done an analysis and it found that climate and weather disasters globally since the 1970s have gone up by five times, and the economic damage has gone up by seven times. Um, In the United States, billion-dollar disasters, so disasters that cause a billion dollars, have gone from three per year in the 1980s to about 20 per year now. So if you think about how much money this disaster not only caused in louisiana but then add on what happened in the most populous corridor in the united states philadelphia new york city hartford boston it's going to be billions and billions of dollars of damage people's cars are totaled people basements are totaled i mean the amount of money lost in you know the subway closed i just went out to try to get coffee starbucks is closed today So uh, at least the one that we go to uh, near the broadcast center. So the point is is that it it impacts business, it impacts people's property, and it's going to be tens of billions of dollars in damage just in the New York City region, you know, the Northeast region alone.
0: Given the conditions that you outlined, how can people protect themselves from these kinds of storms? Is there really any way they can protect themselves?
2: Um, Well... So let's let's take fires for instance. People are just simply not going to be able to build you know in interior California that, in areas that are prone to fires or the insurance is going to be much more expensive or they're not going to be able to get mortgages. I mean pretty soon, you know, insurance rates are already going up in California. It's already hard to get you you'd have to you, you really have to have a lot of money to get insurance on these homes now. Um I don't know if they've stopped giving mortgages in certain areas, but you know that's coming. Same thing with hurricane-prone areas along the coast. You know, a lot of people don't think they need flood insurance, but maybe they do. Uh, and flood insurance is very expensive. So you know, and if you're going to build, you got to build a, a, a hurricane-proof home as, to the best of your ability. It's impossible to totally build a, a hurricane-proof home, but if you have the money. And you can invest the extra money to, to, to protect it against a stronger storm. But I mean, the bottom line is most people don't have it. That's that's the point. You know, people always say that climate change doesn't discriminate. And yeah, climate change affects everyone, but it does discriminate because the people with lesser means cannot bounce back from the impacts of climate change. They don't have the money just to buy a new car or to you know, better protect their home, or build a new home. So climate change disproportionately affects the poorest of the poor, but at the same standpoint, it's those you know, most underserved, most vulnerable people that contribute the least to climate change because their carbon footprint is significantly lower.
0: I can hear people say, look at that view, this is paradise. Even when it comes to California and those wildfires, people love that land, they love the view. They love the mountains. But what you're saying is that it all comes at a cost.
2: It comes at a cost. And so these are big decisions that people need to make. You know, I'm not going to tell a person not to live in a certain area. That's their prerogative. Um, I I lived on South Beach in Miami, on an island off South Beach, (laughs) one of the most vulnerable places to hurricanes. And storm surge. Why? Because I'm a human being and I love that view. And, you know, 364 days a year, that view is wonderful. The one day a year that it's not is a disaster. But, you you know, these are these are decisions that people are going to need to make. Now, in the infrastructure deal that Congress is trying to pass, uh, there is a lot of money for climate adaptation. So essentially, money to kind of shore up our infrastructure for the inevitable. Unfortunately, there is no money for climate mitigation in the infrastructure bill—the one that's like 1.2 trillion dollars. So they're not allowing money in there to really protect us from more climate change, meaning stop climate change from happening. You know, although the other bill, the um, the bigger bill, which is like three trillion dollars. That may or may not pass, that has a lot of money for climate mitigation, kind of transitioning us over to renewable energy, moving us away from fossil fuels, you know, stopping subsidizing fossil fuels and increasing subsidies to renewable energy. But you know, that's a tough one. Politically, there are a lot of people and there's a lot of vested interest and in money in oil and gas. And so it's been incredibly difficult. Plus, we have our all of our infrastructure and so much of our life is built on, on fossil fuels. So it's not only is it politically difficult, it's physically difficult, but it's something that we absolutely need to do because as we increase temperatures, and by the way, carbon dioxide, methane, and temperatures are still going up at the same clip that they went up 20, 30 years ago. We've known about this for decades and we've done very little in um, and in the future, this only gets worse at an exponential pace. It doesn't go up linearly. As you can see, look at these fires. I mean, it's not just two times worse than it was in two, 2010. It's 20 times worse than it was in 2010.
0: But is there a silver lining?
2: So, Jeff, thank you for allowing me the chance to not be the Grim Reaper like, I've always, like I always am lately. And just say that it is not too late to save ourselves uh, from climate change. Um, and we, we know the cure. We have the climate cure. In some ways, I think it mimics COVID, right? There is, there is a, a, a way to prevent COVID now, or at least to prevent death from COVID, and that's the vaccine. But there are a lot of people who don't want to partake in that cure. There is a climate cure. We have the technology. It's in many ways, renewable energy is cheaper than fossil fuels or as cheap. So everything is, is before us. We have the tools. We have the know-how. We just need the willpower. But we have to do it fast. Jeff, thanks. All right. Thank you, Jeff.
0: Van Newkirk writes for The Atlantic, and he has a podcast called Floodlines. It explores the days after Katrina caused the levees to break in New Orleans. Why do you think the lessons learned from Katrina are important now?
1: Well, I think what we did with Floodlines was try to uh, take apart the traditional narrative that what happened in New Orleans in 2005 was a hurricane, that the disaster then was the result primarily of a natural disaster or a random event. We focus on days after The hurricane and after the levees broke, to really look at the fact that this was a human built catastrophe, as most uh, catastrophes and disasters in the US are today.
0: Why do you think that Katrina was a human built catastrophe?
1: If you look at the course of what happened during Katrina, Katrina was not the big one, the storm that everybody in the area feared was going to come. It didn't make a direct hit on New Orleans. What it did do was uh, the water that it pushed it via the storm surge overwhelmed levees, a levee system that was just not up to par. And then after that, the flooding that was catastrophic in many places was exacerbated by a lackluster, biased, uh, you name it, all types of dysfunctional response and relief effort uh, that really ended up playing on the worst stereotypes of people in New Orleans that played on the worst of America's history in providing disaster aid and exposed, I believe, a weakness in infrastructure, in uh, human compassion for other humans, and in our political ability to move when we need to be urgent.
0: Pre-Katrina, do you think that there was bias in how government leaders worked or didn't work to prevent hurricanes from doing serious damage?
1: Pre-Katrina, I think my my diagnosis of what was going on pre-Katrina was both a combination of a state and national governments that were just not interested in doing the kinds of things that you need to do to. Uh, First of all, acknowledge that disasters are coming and that they are likely coming at a uh, greater pace and uh, severity in today's times. And some of that is, I think, because of existing uh, racial biases, existing biases I- against uh, poor folks. But also, I think the politics of those uh, of the times now uh, favor short-term thinking. They don't favor long-term capital investment in in protecting people against natural disasters, against uh, storms and floods. And they favor, in Louisiana especially, uh, they favored getting rid of wetlands, maximizing the return on oil and gas. And those things directly Contradicted what lots of the experts were saying we needed to do in order to to survive. So, you, you you had them destroying at a just alarming pace wetlands that should have prevented the worst of the storm surge during Katrina, and that was a direct result of prioritizing profit and prioritizing industry over the well-being of people. And it stands, you know, the people who were most at risk here. Were the ones who don't traditionally have a lot of say in the government.
0: Let's be honest here. What you're talking about are the primarily black folks who live in that city.
1: Yeah, you're talking about a primarily black city, one where we know not just your exposure to the initial events of the disaster, um, but your ability to lobby for long term for, for disaster aid, your ability to lobby the government for uh, if you're in New Orleans and you want the state of Louisiana to do things out in the, the parishes to protect the wetlands, you're at a disadvantage because the state government is automatically uh, sort of set up against uh, the wishes of people within New Orleans. Uh, but beyond that, you know, I think once you get into the, the phase after the disaster hits, When those folks are asking for not just, uh, you know, being saved from addicts, when they're asking for long-term support, then we basically go back to the same old thing of, are they worthy enough? Are they, why do they deserve this? They've been portrayed in the news as criminals, as looters. And yeah, those are not the people that we want to help nationally.
0: What were you thinking this time when Ida was approaching?
1: So obviously, when you see a major, potentially catastrophic hurricane approaching the Gulf in late August uh, and on the 16th anniversary of Katrina, you think about Katrina. And I think this is something that anybody who studied this, you know, anytime you hear about a depression hitting the Gulf, you start thinking. You start thinking about the levies. You you wonder if they're really up to snuff. You wonder uh, how your people there are doing. And my first thing I did was go and I went and texted and called and emailed dozens of folks that I know in the area, not just in New Orleans and Louisiana and Mississippi, where my family's from. Mississippi. Uh, you you want to make sure they're okay first and foremost. But then you there's always you always think about uh, the Katrina makes you think about all of the things that can go wrong outside of the direct impact of a hurricane. So you start thinking, okay, maybe the hurricane won't be as big of a deal because it's moving quickly. But then you start thinking about if all the levees around the area are going to be safe, if they're all well built, if all the infrastructure that people say is good and rated for uh, category X hurricane is actually rated for that, and then you think about, OK, if, if things do go wrong, if we do have major flooding or major wind damage or if, if power is knocked out or anything like that, are we going to be able to uh, drum up the national local will to actually help people in a timely and appropriate fashion? And then it, it always when you start seeing things develop, like when you start seeing things like the local police being on alert for looting. Despite, you know, there being no major reports of looting, despite it clearly being, uh, to me in my mind, uh, 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 an allocation of resources that doesn't fit what's happening. When you see the, the narrative emerging around looting, when you see people start talking about uh, criminality before there have been any reports of any sorts of crime whatsoever, Then you start having the flashbacks and you start thinking about, okay, this might not be Katrina, but some of the same motifs and same themes of how we think about who, uh, what a disaster is, who is worthy of help and why they are worthy of help. Those things keep happening over
0: and over again. And and you, you see it. Why do you think those things keep happening? The storms will keep coming, but the lack of planning for the storms. I think.
1: I think disasters. Are, we like to think of them as things that come out of nowhere. And in a hurricane, the case of a hurricane, the actual weather event, the meteorological event, it is something that it is somewhat random. Uh, we don't know when and where and how they're going to shape up and where they're going to go and uh, how strong they're going to be. But when you really get to thinking about what they do to humans, the effects of disaster beyond the meteorology, those are utterly predictable and based on existing human systems. So what we tried to stress in floodlines and what also happening on some scale and is happening now on some scale is the people who are affected most by uh, the, the the flooding by the wind damage, the people who are least able to evacuate the people who don't have the capital to rebuild, the people who will most be at risk when the lights go out, those are the folks who have been neglected by government, by our society for the longest and who have already been marginalized. So you see it now, the people who are most at risk in Louisiana Mississippi with the power being out, they're not wealthy people. (laughs) They're not people who are well-to-do. They're not people who live in nice neighborhoods. They're people who need Uh, The the lights would be on to have dialysis once a week. There are people who, uh, those people tend to be poor. They tend to be people of color, tend to be people who have already been outside of our systems. You see the people who are most, who weren't able to evacuate there and who get blamed for not being able to evacuate as if this was all some sort of morality play. They're people who don't have the means to evacuate, or if they do have the means, they're people who have seen how this goes when they leave the city and come back and are able to go back to their houses because they're not allowed to by policy. The people who have been burned before by evacuating, people who have spent all the money they had to evacuate and then have no support after that, and they end up staying and end up being the the ones who are most exposed to personal safety risk. Every single thing on down the line, the people who are always put up against the worst conditions, both during and after the actual meteorological disaster event, they tend to be the people who are already up against the worst of it in society. And that happened in Katrina. I guarantee you it's happening now during Ida. When hurricane, whatever comes in, you know, the next time a, a big hurricane makes landfall, it's what's going to happen when the hurricane makes landfall.
0: Why do you think these things keep happening? The storms will keep coming, but the lack of planning for the storms. You seem to have doubts about whether enough lessons were learned from Katrina. I'm also, you seem to have doubts about whether enough lessons were learned from Katrina. What I'm also hearing is that you believe there's still a lot of work to do when it comes to protecting people from these very devastating storms, which are going to come. It's just a matter of when.
1: Yeah. On the one hand, I think we should acknowledge that uh, the new and improved levee system around New Orleans, at least it held up during the storm. It is by all measures, by all accounts a much improved system and that was part of the lesson that we learned from katrina and i think if you see a disaster take shape you know it probably that might not be the locus where it comes from i think there is a lot more vigilance in terms of the storm protection system there and you you have to count that among the learned lessons after Katrina. Uh, but Beyond that, I think when we're talking about building a society that is resilient, that cares about just recovery, that cares about making sure that people are prepared for these events, that we are that we build a politic that is forward-looking, I think a lot of those lessons have just not been absorbed at all anywhere. And so I think that would be accurate to say.
0: I see the headlines coming out of Ida. The fact that public officials are telling people, hey, you might not have power for up to a month. It seems hard to believe that in this day and age, it's going to take a month for some people to get their lives back in some ways. Yeah. And
1: I think when you look at how people have responded, when people thought about Katrina, when people were flashing back to Katrina when it came to Ida, The thing on most people's minds, obviously, and understandably, was the levees, because the levees are the piece of infrastructure that was most spectacularly uh, at fault during and after uh, the hurricane in 2005. But you don't see as much thinking about, say, the electricity grid as a vital part of the post-disaster infrastructure, and one that can, if it goes wrong, if it does collapse, can lead to just as many deaths. So I was in uh, Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. I was there for quite a while in, in, in complete darkness. There were people who went months and months, perhaps up to a year without steady electricity on the island. And the thing that killed people in Puerto Rico after Maria and made it one of the deadliest disasters in American history was the loss, the complete destruction of the electricity grid. So you have to think about that as as much of critical disaster infrastructure as say a levee flood protection uh, plan and then you understand that in you saw it happen not just during hurricanes you see it happen in Texas during the winter storms uh two winters ago right you you saw uh people just die because we do not really do a lot of uh, strong thinking about justice when it comes to energy and our electricity grid. So that's what's happening in Ida.
0: Van, thank you. I've been a reporter for 30 years. I've covered a lot of hurricanes. I know what it's like to be in the eye of a storm. But there is nothing like being the victim of a storm. I've had my house flooded. I've had to wade through five feet or more of flood water to get home in the dark because the power is out and has been out for days I can't imagine losing a loved one in a storm or losing your home and all that you've had, all that you've worked for over the years, even though I've covered those stories. I still don't know what it's like to be a victim of a storm like Ida. And you know what? I pray that I never have to experience something like that. The people who have and are living through that nightmare right now, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. This is a tough time for you, no doubt, but you're going to get through it, and there are people standing by to help you, and if you feel like you aren't getting the support you need, find a news camera, call a news station, or send us a note. I know that there are a lot of critics of journalists out there and news organizations, but at moments like this, if you're feeling like local or national politicians aren't addressing your needs... That's what the media is here for. That is it for this week's America Change Forever podcast. You can download previous episodes wherever you download podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, Jeff Begay's CBS, and on Instagram, Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever...